Hi, everyone. Thank you to all the new listeners from across the globe who have clicked play on their podcast app. Welcome to HIV and AIDS POV. HIV and AIDS Point of View is going to be a new podcast, a collection of stories from those living with HIV or AIDS. HIV and AIDS POV will also invite those who have been affected by HIV or AIDS. Those of us who have partners have been invited to share their stories as well. I was inspired by the podcasters that came before me who were also interested in sharing their story. I'm going to grab the baton and run with it. We'll start with my story, but I'll ask a few of my friends who are also living with HIV to come and share their story as well. My goal is to reduce stigma that's associated with HIV and AIDS so that way we can educate our neighbors and the people around us. Their miseducation or their misinformation is usually one of the biggest reasons why a lot of us who are living with the virus feel alone. If you are out there listening to this podcast, welcome. Thank you for clicking play on your podcast app. If you'd like to follow us online, you can visit me on Instagram and Twitter at HIV AIDS POV. Drop me a line. I'd love to know where you're sending me a message from. Let's share our stories together. First off, we have to ask, how did I learn about AIDS or how did I learn about HIV? So we're going to flash back all the way to 1989. I believe it was August of 1989 when Madonna released her Like a Prayer album. And I got that as a gift on cassette. Once you would open up the cassette, you would see all of the lyrics, liner notes. And at the very end was this particular uh, liner note that said the facts about AIDS. And my mind at, gosh, I want to say I was just turning 10, um, was interested and excited about what I was reading. It's called The Facts About AIDS, and it was giving you a quick rundown on what AIDS was. So later that year, I'm in school. It's the fifth grade. We're probably ending the school year because I believe summer was right around the corner and the entire class was asked, what would you like to write about if you needed to write about something with regards to the future? And I thought, oh, I have, I have the best news because I just had seen this information, the facts about AIDS, and apparently that's a big deal. We need to talk about it. Like Nancy Reagan said, don't do drugs, don't get AIDS. So I was excited to write about this particular subject, thought I was the first. No one else in my class was talking about it, considering we were all 10. So I wrote the uh, quick little one sheet about AIDS, which I had learned from this little leaflet in a Madonna Like a Prayer cassette. And you would have thought I had called in some type of bomb threat to the school, which in 1989 was not something that happened. So my mom came up to the school and my teacher informed her that whatever was happening at home, unfortunately, couldn't spill into the classroom, and so that particular subject matter was just not going to be allowed. So that was my introduction into HIV and AIDS as a 10-year-old, just trying to be proactive in my future and not really thinking about stigma or closed minds. I was reading something that I thought was informative, and I wanted to share it with somebody. But that's my introduction into HIV and also my introduction into the stigma around HIV and AIDS. 
I'm not sure if my mom was embarrassed, but I will tell you, she did not make me feel bad for wanting to write about that. Granted, it was adult talk for a juvenile, but she did not make me feel bad. And I definitely love that she always encouraged my spirit to be curious because many parents could have at that moment said no. My first HIV test came in December of 1997. By that time, I was already 18 years old and had become familiar with what I was supposed to do as a responsible gay man. So my very first HIV test was done on the East Coast. I was living on the East Coast at the time, and I went to the local clinic for gay men or gay men's health. And I remember at that time, being 1997, it was a completely different place then than it is now. It's a lot more accommodating now. But at the time, it was very institutional. So as an 18-year-old pup, there I am going in, getting my free HIV test, completely confidential. I was assigned a number. I remember it was a five-digit number. And with that five-digit number, I could keep my confidentiality and still get my test. So I go into a hallway with that gymnasium floor tile and chairs just lined up on either side of the hallway. It probably had to be maybe eight chairs on either side. And beyond the double doors were the doctors and, of course, where you would speak to the staff, get your blood drawn, etc. I'm waiting with a group of gay men. And granted, I'm on the East Coast. I'm in a major metropolitan city. There is a gay neighborhood, a gay Mecca, life is thriving, and we are all from different walks of life. I think the one person that stands out the most, as I think about it now, is the one who wasn't necessarily in the corner, but in the middle of the chairs lined up against the wall, completely just stuck in his position, feet on the floor, hands on his knees back up, posture straight, head forward, and no social contact whatsoever. I'm guessing he might have been scared. Possible um, scare from someone who maybe told him that he was HIV positive. I remember at the end of that particular row were your young boys, your young men. I'm sure guys in their late teens, early 20s who are already having a good time and just trying to be responsible. And then there were other people. Again, all walks of life, people I would never think that I would see sitting down in a chair waiting for an HIV test. So we get called back, and I say we because I did have a friend with me at the time, so we both got our HIV test. And at that time when you got an HIV test, it was a blood draw. And then you would wait for about a week, if not a minimum of three days, and then you would get your results. Thankfully, my results came back negative that very first HIV test, and that was also the day that I decided to get in a committed long-term relationship. So it seemed to work out, or at least the way I thought it did. Moving forward, my schedule was to get an HIV test every three to six months, and from that month, let's see, that was December of 97, until I took my last HIV test in December of 2001, I would get myself tested every three to six months without fail. So flash forward 
to when I left the East Coast to come back home to the Southern States. And mind you, I had gotten my very first HIV test in a major metropolitan city on the East Coast, and that's important because of how I was educated about HIV and what to do to remain responsible and vigilant in my health. So moving to the South was different because of the stigma that already surrounded HIV. While I was educated about what I needed to do up north to remain responsible and continue to remain negative, in the South, the education was different. It was pro-abstinence. And I remember the very first HIV test that I had gotten in the South, in the major metropolitan city that I lived in at the time. I was 18 years old, and it was the first test that I had taken in the state. And I remember asking the clinician, what would my, uh, let's see, what would my chances of contracting the virus be, even if it was just non-penetration? So no penetration at all, just body parts touching. And I remember he had a wooden phallic object that they used for sex education, and he was pretty much showing me that if the head of the penis touches the butt or the opening in any way, HIV infection. And I believed him. At 18 years old, not having the proper education, not getting proper sex education while I was living at home, etc., etc., I believed him. And I thought it was that simple to get HIV. Mind you, I did move to another part of the same state in the South, and when you think it can't get worse, it actually does. While I was in the upper part of the state, which tends to be a little bit more traditional and focus on classic Republican values, I again went to the local health department to get an HIV and STD test, being responsible, and I remember walking in and feeling as if being there, just being there, was all I had to do to have an ugly mark on me. As if going to this particular place in this particular city meant that I must be some type of sexual deviant. Because, you know, good people don't go to the health department. So while I'm there at the health department, again, coming from a major metropolitan city, so of course you have an ego that comes along with that type of big city living. You're used to doing what you need to do. It's, it's not a surprise. It's not a big deal. I'm here to get my HIV and STD test. And I remember just feeling so judged by the nurse with regard to being there. It was almost just like a checklist. Like, okay, I've seen so many gay men, all gay men come in with this. And it was just the checklist from head to toe. Checking your body, your penis, your rear end, in between your thighs. Do you have any type of communicable diseases, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember leaving there feeling violated, number one, because they give you a urethral swab, an anal swab, and an oral swab for all of the tests. But also because I felt that being there, being responsible about my health and my status, that I was somehow implying that I'm a sexual deviant or I have a promiscuous lifestyle, which neither were true. 
end up coming back a week later, get my test results, negative. And while I was only in that city for a small short of time, I did continue to get tested. And so there were two tests in that city, as well as the other major metropolitan area in the South that I lived in. And there was a clear divide with how you learned what you needed to know about HIV. And mind you, at this time, I am not HIV positive. I am just testing to make sure that I remain negative and I'm aware of any STDs, etc. So we flash forward to 2001. And in 2001, I ended a long-term relationship with the person that I had gotten that first HIV test with. And the last HIV test I remember getting was in March of that year. I hadn't been involved with anyone prior, and I hadn't begun dating anyone until much closer to my birthday in the summer. So I was negative at that last test. Mind you, I had this wonderful romantic world and romance with this incredible person, or at least I thought. And we moved back to the southern states again. And so while I'm in the South, in a different major metropolitan area, beginning a new life with my new partner, excited about all of the new adventures we'll go on together, I notice he drinks a lot. And I'm not really sure how to handle that, because, of course, everybody drinks, but this just seems to be excessive. Mind you, during this time, I haven't gotten my HIV test. It has been going on six months, and, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I really need to get an HIV test. I need to make sure that I'm still negative and I don't have any STDs. And then September 11th happened, and everything changed. Not just for me, for him, but for pretty much everyone in the world. And it put him into a tailspin where I believe he spent the entire week drunk. I don't, I don't, I don't know if there was ever a moment where he wasn't drunk. So long story short, I am that relationship and I travel back to the East Coast, which is my home, it's where I feel safest. I've got no problem driving right back up to where all of the incidents are happening. And once I got back to the East Coast, I specifically thought to myself, I need to get an HIV test. By this time, it's September of 2001, late September of 2001. In late September of 2001, while I have every intention to get my HIV test, I have still yet to get my HIV test. Finally, we come to the month of December. And by this time, the holidays haven't approached. We are quickly getting to Christmas. I was out downtown with a friend, and I remember passing a mobile testing site and thinking, I can make a quick stop in here and I can get my test. While this isn't the traditional um, platform I would normally use to get my HIV test. It is something that's available and I can do it right now. It takes less than 10 minutes. And I remember thinking at that time at this mobile testing site where I'm being charming and charismatic and getting a few laughs from the technicians that it's going to be a bummer that I have to come back to this location the day after Christmas to get my results. So flash forward to the day you get your results, day after Christmas, 2001. 
And I went down there and it was a very rainy, cold, dreary day. And as I make my way down there, it turns into afternoon, early evening, and the mobile testing site is not there. So I thought, okay, well, you know, no big deal. Not really feeling like being downtown the day after Christmas. I'll go home. Once I get home, I enjoy the holidays. The end of the year all of a sudden becomes January 2002. And at this time, I'm working in corporate America. I'm involved in publishing, and I'm an assistant. Every day I go to my office, and I work from 9 until 5. And this particular day, I'm late. So I didn't even get into my office until almost lunchtime, I think. It was probably closer to 11.45 when I sat down at my desk. And I remember thinking, as I'm sitting down at my desk that I've got a lot to do today. Goodness, I should have come in earlier. And then I get a phone call on my phone. And I say, hello. And the voice on the other said, on the, on the, the voice on the other end asked for me specifically. And I said, speaking. And the person said, again, may I please speak to so-and-so? And again, I said, speaking. And the voice said, you know, this is a very important phone call and I really need to speak to so-and-so. By this time, I'm a little frustrated. And I said, this is so-and-so. You are talking to so-and-so. So, of course, she apologized. So due to the matter of the situation that it was important that she knew that the identity was correct. So already I know something's going on. Needless to say, the local health department had called me to inform me of my results from the mobile testing site. I wasn't able to get them the day after Christmas when they were supposed to be available due to weather. She asked if I was able to come to the health department office, and my very first response was no, because I had come into work late. And I had this deep inclination within me. I'm very stubborn, so no was the right answer and was prepared to stay at work. But something told me to say otherwise. And so I said, you know, I can be there this afternoon. What time is good for you? She had mentioned two o'clock. So I'm like, great, I will be there at two o'clock. And I had no idea where I was going because I'd never had to go to the health department before. So I look up the directions online and I make my way over to the health department. Since I don't have a car at this time, I'm walking and taking public transportation. Once I get there, I make my way up to, goodness, what floor was it? I want to say fourth floor. And once I'm on the fourth floor, I walk into a large lobby and I say hello. I remember that particular day I was wearing a scarf. It was a really nice steel blue scarf and I only remember because I kept playing with it while I was sitting there in the lobby waiting to be called back. <clears throat> I think it was probably less than 10 minutes and, and while I'm not sure what the receptionist was thinking while she was looking in my direction but I'm sure she could see that there was a very pensive look on my face deep in thought. I get called back and I remember going into what looked like a conference room. Open the door, big table, lots of chairs. 
and one full wall of windows. And of course, you look out and you just see another building, but that was where we sat. And even though it was such a big room, it was just the two of us. So I sit down in one chair, she sits down in the other, I verify my identity, and then she tells me that my test results for HIV have come back positive. And my first response, my very first natural response was, ooh, that's not good. And prior to making this particular recording, this particular webisode, I had to think about what that meant. Because if you and I were talking, and we were just sharing gossip, and I was acknowledging whatever drama is unfolding in your life or other lives, I would use the word, oh, okay. And that's how I would acknowledge or dismiss whatever it is that we're talking about. But in this particular instance, my natural response was, ooh, that's not good. And so looking back on it and thinking about 22-year-old me and how I felt about HIV or how I was educated to feel about HIV, I was in that place where I was telling myself, ooh, and not oh. I, I didn't even have empathy for myself with regard to the news that I was getting. And I remember the person who was giving me my test results had asked me if I was okay, if there was anyone that they needed to call, if I needed a few minutes. I remember saying that, yes, I'd like to have a few minutes, but I was okay. and I And I don't believe that I was okay for any other reason than I had been educated and I knew what to do with regard to staying HIV negative, but I didn't really have a lot of information as to what to do now that I'm HIV positive. And at the time, I was working two to three jobs. So I remember thinking, I need to go because I've got to get back to my office. And then I also have to put myself together because I have my night job later today. So the process normally is whenever you get a result of positive that the local health department will receive those test results. It's not the case in all cities or all areas of the country, but at the time and in that city, that was the case. Any clinician or anyone who's a part of these offices will always ask you if there's anyone that you would like them to contact if they have been exposed to the virus. Very similar to contract, contact tracing. And I wrote my list, and my list did not include anyone that I had had physical anal penetration sex with except one individual. Everything else was either cuddling, oral sex, but no type of ejaculation or anal penetration with the exception of that one person. And I remember she asked me if I wanted them to call all of these people. And I said, no. I wanted to reach out to them myself, and I wanted to tell them what had happened and let them know what they needed to do. And I remember there was probably two people that I was really sad that I had to deliver this news to because they were such good guys. And not that we had done anything that would put us in a position to become infected, 
uh, meaning, you know, me infecting them. But because I had been educated to believe that it was so simple and that very little could cause an infection, it was necessary to reach out to him. And the only person that I did not call, but that I physically met up with, was that one individual that I had anal penetration with. Long story short, everyone seemed okay with what was going on. I, at the time, was 22 years old. A majority of the people that I were calling were a few years older, so they had been in their lifestyle as an adult, sexually active in a major city, and understood what the risks and consequences were. So my conversation with them was not new, but for me, it was new. So as I'm leaving that office to go back to my office, I remember feeling numb, not because I flash forward to any type of negative outlook on my future, but it's just a lot to take in. At the time, I had just left a relationship, which I had a lot of hope and ambition for. And now that I'm back in a city that I used to live in, but no longer in a relationship on my own, those circumstances and how I feel about the situation has certainly changed. So as I'm going back to my office in a very numb feeling, I remember getting there at about four, and one of my coworkers who had a desk next to me said, how are you? And I remember I had to turn it on. So I turned it on. And I faked it through the rest of the hour and 22 minutes until I could get to my second job. And my second job was as a server. So I would work during the day as an office admin, and I would work in the evening as a server. So I go to my second job as a server and I talk to my manager, who's a wonderful person, maybe two or three years older than me. And she is just amazing. We have a great relationship, amazing rapport. So anytime that I was in a jam, I could talk to her very easily with no judgment. So I sit her down in the corner of the restaurant and I let her know that my test results for HIV have come back positive. And by now, it's real easy to say that because I'm, I'm just disassociating and just repeating the words as I heard them from the person who let me know. And she's just shocked, just absolutely shocked and sad at the same time. When she was my friend and I had told her the news because I didn't feel ashamed about sharing the news, which will be an important factor later in the story. But I remember how sad she was for my situation. She was more sad than I was, but at the time I was numb. She ended up saying, you know, let's not focus on you being here right now. Let's just, you know, you're off, go home, clear your mind. Because at the time, the particular test that had been taken was what we call an Orisher test. So it was an oral swab that would collect saliva and then be sent to the lab. When I left the health department, my clinician said, or the individual who helped me with my status said that the best thing to do would be to visit my primary care physician and receive a blood test. 
So in Anna's mind, she's thinking this blood test is going to be the Hail Mary we need. It's going to come back negative. So I go home and I remember as I'm on my way home, public transportation, I am passing my friend's stop. His name is Mike. And so I made a last minute decision to get off at that stop. I've been through the ringer by this point. Certainly, I don't have enough energy or enough strength within me to get into a major conversation, but I'm going to go ahead and make every attempt to. So I visit my friend, and I remember the entire night that I was there, which was probably about two to three hours, I just couldn't bring myself to tell him. I just, I, I did not have the words to let him know that my test had come back positive. And now we need to see you get tested because of the unprotected anal penetration we had together. So tried, 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 couldn't do it. Ended up getting on the public transit right before it closed so I could make my way home. What a terrible day. Granted, I've got two to three jobs and I work every day. So there wasn't a lot of time to stop and reflect on what had happened. I pretty much just had to pick up and keep going. Regardless, I leave Mike's place, I make my way home, and the rest of the week essentially is as it normally was. I wake up, I go to work, I go to my second job, I come home. Friday nights are the only day that I don't work my night job, and that would have been the first night that I was able to be home alone by myself. I had some friends to hang out with, and I didn't get a chance to necessarily talk about my status as much as I wanted to, but that Sunday was the day that I knew I didn't need to work at all at any of my jobs, and that would be my day to reflect. So I'll always say I cry on Sundays, because when I tested positive, Sunday was the first day that I had off where I didn't need to work, and that was the first day that I was able to reflect and really process the status of positive. And I remember I rented two videos because I didn't have any idea what living with HIV was like. One of them was Jeffrey, and the other was It's My Party. And I had never seen Jeffrey, and I believe I might have seen parts of It's My Party, but naturally went ahead and threw it's my party into the VCR. That's right. We rented video cassette tapes then. And so I'm watching this movie, completely engulfed and enamored. What a wonderful story. Oh my God, they're in love. And at the very end, I'm just a giant mess of tears. So I didn't get a chance to watch Jeffrey. But that was the movie that I wanted to watch, and so I ended up watching that movie. Had a very reflective evening and knew that even though I was positive, it wasn't a death sentence. Although, when I first got tested in 1997, we didn't have a lot of positive news then. So when your negative results came back, you were very much happy. 1996 was the first year that there was a decline in the deaths of the AIDS pandemic. Prior to 1996, there was no decline. And 1996 was also when the heart therapy came out for HIV, and it showed a lot of promise with multiple medications. And when I got my test, my very first test in 1997, 
We're only a year out from the good news of the medication, the decline in death, and hopefully the change in the stigma. But at that time, the misinformation that I was given made it seem that abstinence was the safest sex. So now that I'm HIV positive and getting back to normal, my stance is to tell everybody because that's, that's what you do. When you're positive and you want to make sure that other people aren't positive, you just tell everybody that you're positive. And I didn't see any real trouble with that. I didn't think there was anything wrong with it because in my mind, I was okay with being positive. I was going to do what I needed to do to remain healthy and sexually safe. But for all the people in my life, I just became the face of what it is that they were afraid of. While they knew what HIV and AIDS was, it had never come into their lives so directly. And being a server, we were in a environment of young minds, and some of those young minds were just not able to handle that status change. And so by the end of my response to all my friends that I was now positive, I think I held on to about five friends. I think everyone just sort of left because they didn't know what to do and they didn't know how to help. And I couldn't direct them with what to do either because I didn't know what I needed to do myself. Nevertheless, the good friends do stick by you. And I knew that one of the things I had to do was find a doctor. So thankfully, the clinic that I had gone to, which is a gay men's clinic in the city, was able to refer me to a doctor. Now, at this time, very much like it is today, health care was not something that is afforded to everybody. So as a 22-year-old with three jobs living in a major metropolitan city, I did not have health care, nor was I eligible for any of the programs that would take a look at my income and see if I qualify for a reduced rate. My doctor did tell me about a clinical trial, and at this time, the multi-medication treatment was showing good things with regard to the labs you were getting back. And so a lot of manufacturers were now starting to take those two-day pills, two-a-day pills, one pill that you would take twice a day, and combining them, making them one pill once a day or two different drugs combined together that you would take once a day. And this was a clinical trial that I believe would go for about two years during the time I would have a doctor who would monitor me. I would have all kinds of testing, et cetera, et cetera. So I went ahead and jumped in that trial, thinking it was a good thing, mostly because at 22, with a new diagnosis of HIV and no health care coverage, I wasn't sure how I was going to stay healthy without medication or a doctor. So I jump into this trial, and I remember the first month was probably one of those months where if everything could go wrong, it did go wrong. Being HIV positive was one thing I was able to swallow, but Getting a TB test and having it come back positive was just more than my mind could take at that moment. 
And even though the nurses were telling me that it wasn't the end of the world, it sure did feel like that. And it turned out that it was a false positive. So I didn't even have tuberculosis or need to take the medication or have to get the x-rays. But it certainly left a lasting impression on me because I remember thinking I can handle the HIV, but I cannot handle having something else on top of it. And at that time, what made things even more difficult was I was transitioning from one city to another. And you would never think that would be an issue unless you don't have health care coverage. Because now I had to requalify for all of the items that I had previously qualified for in a different city, in a different county. So it was beginning to feel that my HIV was something that would be a fight for my life and for my health care. That no one was going to help me along this way that I was going to have to be the advocate for myself to make sure I still I stay healthy. So now that I'm living in my new home with my good friend Mike, after I've told him that he's been exposed, he took it like an adult. And I remember him saying that no one made him do anything that he didn't want to do and that we were both adults. I remember thinking, that's a good answer because that's not what I was expecting. And he was the first person that I was putting in a situation where he could have been infected. So he had every right to be angry if the situation had turned out differently, or at least that's what I thought. But he made it clear, no, he was not angry, but very much happy that I took the responsibility and I was mature at that age to have a conversation with him. And let him know that I could have put him at risk. So in his mind, that's what really put me in, a, in an upper echelon. Because I was handling the situation as best I could. And we remained friends um, until he unfortunately passed. So mind you, I'm now living in a new city with my new roommate. I've had a false test for TB, which I didn't need medication for. I'm now part of a clinical trial to see if this particular medication can gain approval and everything seems okay. But it was that first month, that very first month that was tough. During that first month in a clinical trial, I had to have a baseline recorded. That is, if I remember correctly, 12 to 14 vials of blood, which is a lot. But they had to take tests for everything to make sure that prior to taking the medication, they knew what the environment was. One week later, another blood draw. Two weeks later, another blood draw. Four weeks later, or a month, another blood draw. Until eventually, we got to a schedule of every three months. But in that very first month, I remember getting home one evening and looking in the mirror and thinking, okay, so this is what IV drug users must see when they look at themselves in the mirror because I had blood drawn three times that week and I had blown veins on my left arm and I had track marks on my right arm and I was bruised up and down. And I thought, okay, well, I guess this is going to be the new normal (laughs) since I didn't know what normal was at this particular time. And I drew a sketch 
I remember I pulled out my sketchbook because again, being 22 years old and not having the tools that I have now to process feelings, I needed to process what I was seeing. So I drew a picture, I sketched it out and it uh, continues to remain in my sketchbook. But that was certainly my first introduction into living with HIV responsibly because at the time I did have a doctor, I was getting labs done, my health was being monitored, and the goal was to keep me healthy. So we've talked about a lot today. If you liked what you heard, feel free to visit me on Twitter or Instagram at HIVAIDSPOV and leave a comment. Let's start a conversation. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend. Let them know especially all your podcasting friends, that the show is available for free on all apps that support podcasts. So that's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. They can look it up and subscribe. Thank you again to all the listeners. Welcome to the show. Please leave your comments. If you liked something you heard and would like me to elaborate, by all means, please do. This will be the first of many parts to my story. Hopefully I'll get a chance to walk you through my journey and help you to not feel alone. I was 22 years old when I tested positive and as a young man in a major metropolitan city with others who are also living with HIV, you would assume there'd be a little bit more camaraderie, but there wasn't and that's okay because what this particular podcast is doing is picking up where the other podcast left off, carrying that baton, voicing our stories, giving you our insight, and letting you know that wherever you are on the globe, that you are not alone if you are living with HIV and AIDS, that there are others out there who also share your story and feel the same things you do and have the same questions as well. By reducing stigma of those living with HIV and AIDS, We can dispel all the misinformation and educate people that those living with the virus are not dangerous to others. Wouldn't it be great if we all loved each other and our neighbors would be the ones who would knock on our door to make sure we're doing okay? It really is the smallest of things to reach out and let someone know that you see them. Because when you have this particular infection, depending on what part of the country or the globe you live on, there is a stigma that follows you. And it isn't even attached to you specifically as part of your identity. It just becomes a part of who or what you are. So you allow yourself to be relegated to the sidelines or the corners of society because that's what you're inclined to believe. In closing, don't forget To love yourself, that's the most important part, and the most important thing you can do for yourself is to love yourself and your neighbor. Reach out, be affectionate, be great, share that love. Thank you for spending this time with me. Stay tuned for the next episode. Please remember to click like or subscribe on your podcast app. And until the next time, see you soon. Mm -hmm.